This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. And as we do, sometimes we bring you some people with a different perspective on life that is not insurance-centric, and that's what we're going to do today. Our guest is Mr. Bob Marsh, who's a keynote speaker on the topic of all things, if you can imagine it, in our world, simplicity. We are in one of the most complicated industries out there, but this guy tells me if you can keep it simple, you can be successful, and I actually believe him, so we're going to find out more about that. Before we get kicked off into that thought process, though, Bob, why don't you give everybody just sort of an overview of who you are and and how you got to this point in your life today? Yeah, you bet. Well, first of all, David, thanks for having me. appreciate it. I love what you guys are doing and happy to kind of help wherever I can here. Looking forward to the conversation. So so my background is all in sales and sales leadership. I've spent the last 25 years doing that from, you know, retail sales to copier sales to digital marketing and, and leadership. I also founded and grew my own company, raised several million in venture capital. So I've seen kind of sales from many different angles. So really how I got into this is uh, how I get into the world of, of professional speaking anyway, is uh, when I started my own company, I use it as a way to get our brand out there and found it really successful. Felt that I was adding a lot of value, getting good feedback. So I decided to, hey, take it a little bit more seriously and kind of put some more time to, you know, put some ideas into kind of in, into some shape and, and bring it out there to the world in a whole new way. Nice, man. So the copiers, um, that's something <laughs> we got in, that's something we got in common. I, oh, yeah, I, I sold you office can't supplies. Let go of that one. What's that? You can't let go of that one. No, no, no. And it and it's I mean, I feel like if you can do that, you can sell just about anything, man. Is this that's not an easy thing to do. I so um I don't know if 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 you've listened at all to this, but it's been well documented that I've I, I used to sell office supplies and obviously along with that goes copiers, but it was like it got to the point where I could walk in and just look at somebody's, you know, whatever printers they had behind them and I knew it's it's taking this toner and it's got this much, you know page yield on it and they're going to need you know it, however many to get them through based on how many cases of paper I saw on the so it was an interesting time definitely learned a lot from it a lot about the sales game but if you can sell somebody copiers i feel like you can do <laughs> just about anything <laughs> yeah it's a, it, it is quite a market and, and really you think about it like it's highly competitive yeah uh, for a lot of people it's not the most exciting thing to purchase um, they'd rather just kind of keep like keep what they've already got. Yeah. And, so and like, why do I need a new copier? Yeah, <laughs> who needs a new copier? Like, yeah. On the other side of it, you have like massive improvements in technology that are regularly happening. And yeah. the cost of things kind of in some part of it, think particularly technology related to ink and that kind of thing. And it's been so many years since I've done this, but like we all know no, that's true. Yeah. That it's plummeting. So like there could be good rational reasons, you know. So, you know, go, going back, well, it's funny, like little story. So the the very first it was my very first job, corporate job selling copiers. Mm-hmm. And literally the first call I ever went on was at Grand Haven High School in West Michigan. I walked in and the client gave me one look, look up and down. And he just started laughing at me. <laughs> and, he, the best. and he laughed at me. He's like, because I was too young. I was green. 
too green, he said. Uh, and I, I had to leave the meeting and look up. What does that mean when someone says you're too green? He told <laughs> me that he hated the company I worked for and that my predecessor, the prior sales rep, was a crook. And he put them in a fraudulent contract and that every customer in my territory felt the exact same way. That's so awesome. That was my first call. And, and you know, it, it was amazing, actually, because it's not uncommon, not that, you know, everyone is that mean, <laughs> but everyone right. actually felt that way. Um, but he was very, very clear about it. it just happened to be my first call, you know, and I look back on that and I actually learned a lot from that experience because I got it right between the eyes um, and the importance of really understanding the mind of the buyer and being able to adapt to it and to be an expert because they don't want to hear from some kid. Like they wanted to know, like, how can you help me? Right. It was crazy. And this kind of, it, it kind of leads into this whole topic of complexity is, you know, go six weeks back prior to that first sales call. I spent six weeks like studying material and <laughs> in classrooms and learning about finance options and manufacturing. And like, you know, if the customer says this, do that and how to overcome an objection, how to get to the decision maker, all this stuff that, you know, not that it's not valuable, but it's like, oh my God, like, could we make it more complicated? But that's not what the customer wants. What they want is like far more simple. So anyway, mm -hmm. it's a great experience. I learned a ton from it and uh, it kind of helped ever since. And it sounds like it did to you too. Oh yeah, for sure. It was, um, I mean, it was like a master's class on sales. I was walking into 40 plus businesses a day cold, you know, maybe I had been there like a week or two ago, but I hadn't seen the decision maker or whatever the situation was, but it was just like high volume, just, I mean, you know, rinse and repeat all day long. And then you, once you started making the sales, well, then you started like immediately training other people. So it was, mm -hmm. it was um, definitely very beneficial. Um, surprised that I stuck it out for as long as I was, I did that for like five, five plus years. That's pretty good. I did it um, for about two. Yeah. And so I love your point. Cause like you did, you had to like literally knock on the door, walk in, someone didn't want to see you. No. Um, and so that, that, but I learned too, that, you know, there was value in just, you know, the numbers game, especially back then, oh, yeah. the internet, all that kind of stuff for like, so you, you could just do a little more numbers game than I think you can do now. Um, but like, I realized like, I've got to walk in there with something of value mm -hmm. and something of value is not a brochure. Like, yeah. I need to do a little, so like I went and do, I, I called on, um, I called on schools. So K-12 and, and I learned this little bit of insight that the average school, there were 40 pieces of paper that flew through that district for every student each month. Hmm. So what I did is I, I could go look up the school and I could see, okay, how many students are in the, do they have? And then I do the math and I walk in and be like, so I did a little research on your school. And, and I discovered that if you look at all the schools nationwide, you have whatever, 43,500 pieces of paper flying through your school. They're either on printers or copiers. Did you know that? And, and that was genuinely like, really? How yeah. where did that come from? And then we start talking about it. And the idea is now I'm actually showing up as an expert in how to better manage your costs and all the documents in your, in your district not just the dude trying to sell you a color copier, which would be like the ultimate thing. To mm -hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. so, right. so, so anyway, the, the idea of like bringing insight, uh, I learned very quickly through that. Yeah. Nice. What I miss when I was on my K cup run. Well, he was, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, it, giving his backstory, I, I heard, uh, copier sales. And so we started, that's all we've been talking about is <laughs> is the, the copier sales and quill days and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's where we're at. I figure copier sales is pretty cutthroat, man. It's got to be. That's tough. what I said. I mean, it's like if you can do that, you can do just about anything. Cutco. I mean, right? Yeah. <laughs> Kyle sold one of everything. Keep, I think. Keep, yeah. Keep keep. Did you, really? well, Did you sell keep, Cutco knives too? Yeah. Why don't we just keep talking about my my, oh my previous job? Yeah. Let's. We got to talk. Let's have an interview. Yeah. With Kyle. David, this is a little more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> now the, the Cutco thing, I did, definitely did not last in that for five years. Uh -huh. That started. Um, That's good. No, I, uh, that was when I was in college and that was right around, uh, right around the, the, the time of the recession when that was hitting 2007, mm. 2008, whatever. And uh, so that didn't last too long because people weren't really willing to drop 1500 bucks on a new set of knives. Um, 
it wasn't going to pay the bills. Let's say that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you yeah. start with your, you start with your family and friends and call them and then start trying to web out a little bit, but it was, uh, that was an interesting experience. I knew that it wasn't for me when they had me come in for a training on Saturday, when all my friends were at the USF games, that's where <laughs> I went to school with USF uh-huh. in Tampa. And I was just like, that's not going to work. This is bullshit. I'm out. Uh-huh. Many other things that you could sell. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how like that. So did you say that was you know, that was when you were in college? Yeah. Yeah. My my first I had I sold I sold in college. I had two different things, but one of them was in retail selling golf equipment, which we can talk about. But like you just it's amazing. Like you learn those things early. Like I don't know about it for you, but when I did that, I realized I didn't realize till the end. I'm like, hmm, the sales thing may be up my alley. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it until you actually did it. And you got to do it like in a, in a I mean, it doesn't have to be cutthroat, but you know, when it's difficult like that, you just learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. And quickly too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, of all the things that I have been involved in from a, a sales standpoint, outside of the time that I spent in retail, which was, you know, it was extensive. It was a decade of my life, but outside of that time, have I ever sold something that wasn't a need? I mean, like, I feel like you bring up the satellites all the time. That's, I mean, it's not a need. It's, I would classify that as a luxury, especially back when you were doing it. I, I agree with you, except for the fact I was selling satellite dishes in West Virginia, a state where six, over 60% of the people did not have cable. So if they wanted to watch TV, I would tell you, I'm not, I, I, I actually agree with what you're saying. In those people's minds, they needed that, though. They needed that to be able to get their TV fix. And and so my point being, I don't know that I ever had I've ever had a job from a sales perspective where I had to go in. I I guess a better way to say it would be I didn't need to go in and create demand for my product. Mm. I already had it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Going door to door down a holler in West Virginia that I already knew had no cable because I had Mm -hmm. done my research was shooting fish in a barrel. I just had to get the first one to to fall. That's fair. And then I knew I was going to sell, you know, a couple of more because everybody wants to keep up with the Joneses insurance, a little bit different. It's not that I necessarily, you know, there's this wild demand for my product. People illegally have to have it in most cases. So I, I don't feel like that's as much of a, a, a wow factor as me being able to go in and do the satellite dishes in home theater. I think that when you go in and you do bring value and you have a robust value proposition, you can create the demand for that easier than you can the actual product that, that you're finding. I tell people insurance is the funding mechanism to buy my value proposition. That's how I position at the point of sale, period. Hmm. You're already spending this money. You're using it to get paper that you're pushing around that gets you jobs that you're supposed to have. It'll pay out claims in the event that you have one, God forbid. But at the end of the day, insurance is very much commoditized. People don't don't look at us as trusted advisors unless we position ourselves that way intentionally. And so it just ends up being another thing that gets to be a line item on the income statement as an expense and they're on the road. You know, if you can go in and talk about the ways that you can help them gain market share, the ways you can help them reduce turnover, and you're doing that through your value proposition that's unique to your agency, it's your new, your agency's fingerprints, you're going to create a demand for that if you're any good at all. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really difficult to, I don't know too many people that like, other than the people who have already had a claim that are jumping up and down saying, Hey, I really want to buy insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's <laughs> different businesses. And I, I would think that there's products in your, in your world where you have to do it. I mean, there there's, I've had a couple of different roles where you had to do some of that. I mean, I just call it a, it's a two-step sale. So step number one is help someone realize like why they should, why they should spend money on this category at all which has nothing to do with me or my company or why I'm better than the competition or anything like that. We're just helping them understand why they need to do it. I sold for a company in the digital marketing space. And, you know, the first thing we had to do is like help them understand, like, why should you do digital marketing in this way? Not like anything else. Why you should spend, move money from, you know, print advertising to digital. Why you should print from, from this, that. Here's the advantages of it. Here's the benefits. How, how do we go sell that concept internally? But only when we first got them to understand the value of it in the first place, 
Then it was, okay, now let me try to explain why me versus the next guy. And so, you know, I think that if you break it, if you, if you do realize you're in an industry or maybe an insurance, like there's people that don't, I mean, I, I hear about all kinds of crazy types of insurance that you can buy that probably people never even thought of, but you know, there's probably certain things where you say, all right, I got to first start to help someone understand why should I consider doing this with anybody? And then after you do that, well, certainly you're in a really good position to sell why you, because you're the expert that advised them on how this all works and what they should be analyzing. So that two-phase sale is way more complicated, I, I would say. If you do have that single, the demand is already there. Now your differentiation, you know, there's commoditization like you're talking about. You got the price has got to be right. But I'm sure, I'm sure you experience this, David. Like you can win to competitors just by being responsive, paying attention, mm -hmm. what you say you're gonna do. Like these basic fundamentals <laughs> of like good being a good human being are what separates you as well. Well, I say it all the time. Show up when you say you're gonna show up, do what you say you're gonna do. Email and phone calls should be returned in a reasonably timely fashion. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know the answer, don't make it up. Admit you don't know it. Go get it and get back to them in a timely fashion. If you can do just those four things, <laughs> you're already light years ahead of everybody else out yeah. there. It's funny. It's, I, I was talking to someone. I think I wrote a post about this on LinkedIn. How it, it basically saying, what if we change sales training from teaching you about a product or service and you got to you got to have the basics but what if we spend our time teaching things like how to be a good listener how to how to be how to ask questions how to follow up how to be on time how to dress how to carry yourself how to communicate with confidence like all these really really basic fundamental things to being a business professional that you know i think i came up with a list of like 25 things that were purely about like etiquette and writing and clarity, you know, that, that, that would help you no matter what your job was. Those are the things, to your point, that will separate you from the competition, particularly in an industry that is more commoditized or is not necessarily about that first step sale. Um, that alone will separate you. Should be a course at business school. Oh my gosh. I could, I could do like eight semesters on those topics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, listening alone, could. man. Yeah. Right. Listening yeah. alone. Being it, like an active listener. Yeah. It's like I say all the time, people, too many times people listen with the intent to respond as opposed to the intent to understand, <laughs> right? right? Like we're so worried about that next zinger or that next gotcha comment that we can make that mm -hmm. we actually miss opportunity because we're not paying attention. And then we look stupid at the point of sale because somebody's going to ask you a question about right. something they just said. And the whole time your mind is somewhere completely different, trying to figure out how you're going to you know, prove your point. It's just interesting because I think so many times, whether you're in a negotiation or whether your point of sale, Chris Voss does a really good job of describing this in never split the difference. It's not adversarial. If you're in a negotiation with somebody, that person is not your opponent. They're not your adversary. You need to view them as your dance partner and you're going to lead them where you want them to go, but you need them to move with you to the same beat or you're never going to get the end result that you want. And I mean, that that's certainly a skill and an art and something that requires practice and can be developed over time. But I would argue there aren't very many people that are just born with the innate ability to list, be a very, very good empathetic listener with no preconceived bias or intent to respond. Yeah. Well, think about it. like you need, you, it, it takes work. I mean, if you're a good listener and I, you guys have to be doing what you do, I mean, like it, it's, there's, you kind of said this, there's people who are, who are actually listening and there's people who are just waiting to talk like, and then mm -hmm. that there's kind of a, there's, there's a difference, but it's hard to be, to really listen sometimes. I mean, it takes effort. I mean, the, the, you know, we can talk about this, but like the average human attention span is just like nosediving. So it's hard and it takes more effort now than it did 20 years ago. And then certainly than it did 100 years ago. So so we've got it like it takes work and you've got to teach it and learn it and practice it and force yourself and be disciplined to just pay attention. Mm hmm. Yeah. So talk about this concept of simplicity, man. It just seems mm -hmm. so complicated. <laughs> Yeah, it does. So, you know, you think about so it, the world is just getting more complicated for all kinds of reasons, right? And you know what I see, like the very simple message is: the more complicated it is, the less we're going to sell, because you know customers just don't—they don't have time for it, and they're they're frustrated. So you think about 
So what's going what's going on out there? So first, I try to figure out like how do I break down like what exactly is happening in the world. So one just really simply is information overload. I mean, just if you look at research, it'll say that the average human being today takes in 74 gigabytes of information every single day. And, and to kind of put more shape around that, that's the equivalent of 16 full length movies in one day. All those emails, text, social media, videos, signs, advertisements everywhere. And so and, and, and the research says that it's, it's increasing at least 5% every year. We all know it is. It's getting worse. If you go mm-hmm. back 500 years, the average human would take in 74 gigabytes in a lifetime. Now, granted, <laughs> they were dead when they were 28. But like the point is, like, there's more information coming at us over the place. So what happens is our brains have learned to adapt. Like, it's not bad that all this information is coming in. It's just that we have to adapt. And so neuro, neuro, neuroscientists study this. And we, our brain uses something really simple called a, a adaptive attention. And we just kind of adapt to, to narrow in, like, what am I going to choose to pay attention to? So you think about like those. <laughs> my, my wife would, would say it's never her. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to admit it. But like, think about like the long emails that you get, like, like six blocks of text and like a giant link. And like, as soon as I see that I have to scroll, it's like, no, okay, either done. delete no. or like, if I've met you, I might, you know, it might even like you might be like, oh, okay, I'll get to that later. And then like, maybe you'll get to it, maybe you won't. So like, okay, that's for information overload. The second thing is just dwindling attention spans. So the research, this is really funny. 20 years ago, the average human attention span was around um, uh, 14 seconds. Today, it's It's gotta be, yeah, I was gonna say half. Yeah, a goldfish is nine. So (laughs) it's like, and it's just just dwindling. And, And we can kind of, we all know why, right? There's just so much information coming at us. So when you think about that, our ability to hold, if you understand these things, if you understand that someone's attention is going to zone out every eight seconds, it doesn't mean you have to stop and ask a question every eight seconds, but you better think about your voice inflection and how you talk and how you carry yourself and you know the way that you communicate and using nonverbal communication, all these things matter. And which is why when you write something, keep it brief. Because they're just gonna ignore it. it yeah. I see these 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 beautifully crafted emails that I say that's great. You've got every single point in there or proposal, whatever. Every single point they could ever possibly ask. But here's the problem: they're never gonna read it. Mm-hmm. All that time you spend on it is not ever gonna get read. So when you under that, that's kind of the simplicity which we can get into more. But like if you understand that's what's going on in the world, then you say okay. As the fun at that as that as a fundamental reality. I got to change how I approach, how I talk, how I communicate and how I sell to adapt. So, yeah. And I mean, here's the thing, man, we're at a point now where we have so many tools at our fingertips that they're, even if we suck at taking and making things simple, software will do that for us. Like if I want to write that, maybe, maybe I just, I'll tell you, I'll use a different example, but it applies the same way. If I get mad or irritated about something, underwriter sends me bad news that I don't like. My first reaction is just get down there, get I'm gonna get them on email. Let me let me type my five paragraph response and everything. Rather than me doing that and you know, committing political suicide to a certain degree, or at least causing reputational harm and damage, you know. We're at a point now where I can take that and paste it into chat GPT and say, summarize this into a three sentence email that will get all the major points home or whatever, whatever my prompt is, I can take whatever wording that I have and and make it more focused. I can get it broken down into the smaller and more digestible pieces, things that are going to grab people's attention. So if, if people are still, you know, marketing and sending out these long drawn out emails, and I'm going to tell you my least favorite ones here in just a second, Mm -hmm. But it's because they're not thinking outside the box and using the technology that's available to us. Because even if you're not capable of doing that, you know, yourself, there's software that is. The new technique that I really despise more than anything, and I know that I'm probably dealing with some 14-year-old kid in Japan who's working after school to do this in, in, you know, not really any kind of email, professional email group or whatever else, but it's the people who are telling me they know about my company and they know they have a a solution to my problem, which by the way, I don't have this problem when I get the email, but they know that I do because they've done their research. And 
they send me this email in this very like friendly conversational tone. I know that within five minutes, I'm going to get a second email from the team lead or whoever is, let me step in here and finish what so-and-so started. Like that drives me absolutely nuts. Now you've got the email automations at the point where they're going to hit you with the first one that sucks. Then they're going to immediately <laughs> come back and they're going to hit you from the point of, I, I wrote a guy last week. I'm like, nobody cares what your job is, man. You hold no more authority than the other person who emailed me about a problem. My, my industry and my company doesn't have, you're wasting your time and mine. May God have mercy on your soul. No, I mean, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, that's how I feel, man, because here's the thing. This is the one thing I can promise you will never, ever change. It will not change in the sales game. Nobody's going to, nobody is going to change my mind. People that are willing to work harder are always going to get ahead. And here's the thing. The people who are willing to work harder are not the people that the second you connect with them on LinkedIn, send out a million messages on a bot that uses a token that grabs something that's not even the name you go by or anything, trying to tell you that they understand your business because they took a couple seconds to read your LinkedIn profile. The person who actually wants to connect with you took the time to read your LinkedIn profile, probably clicked a few links to read some of the content you've put on there, maybe even went to your company website and actually did do diligence as a salesperson, and they're going to send you a quick note or better yet, as I tell people to do, they're going to send you an audio note through the LinkedIn app. So they know you're not a bot, you're a real person and that you're authentic in what you wanted to connect with them for. That's it. I don't think people want to play games online, but yet there's so many games that can be played. I don't think the solution is you just abandon it. I think you do it the right way and you're going to highlight that you're that much better than everybody else, which goes back to my point. If you're willing to work harder and do the things other people aren't willing to do, you're always going to write more business. That doesn't mean you don't use technology. You just work to use that technology to work for you the way you need it to instead of the easiest way out. Amen. Amen. I mean, think about it. The, the fact that there's the, the technology, it's just one less, re, one more reason we don't have a good excuse to not do this stuff right, because this technology can help us if we use it to our advantage. But the other thing, all of this technology too, and all the different messaging tools that you're talking about, like per, I love your comment about like really personalizing. Like I get these all the time. Personalization does not mean inserting my name, my title, and my company name and the name of my company <laughs> with like exactly. a comma LLC at the end of it. Like that's, <laughs> that's not how people communicate. So, but, but, you know, I see that kind of stuff and I'm like, oh, this is like makes it so easy to stand out because like mm -hmm. yeah, so much of it's terrible that if you just like sound genuine because you are and you actually do a little bit of research and have a specific idea that's relevant to them, like you're gonna stand out because it's, it becomes a little bit easier to. Now, because, because buyers are so barraged with so much, you've gotta figure out a way, like how am I gonna make my message look a little bit different so they even open the thing? Mm -hmm. But you know, suddenly your, your, at, your, your batting average goes way up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can mix in some of the other things too, like with the technology, like you can reach out, you can maybe send them something. Or uh, one of the things that David talked about that I thought was brilliant was just looking in the, um, like the, like the fast 50 or whatever the title of that, um, you know, publication is. Yeah. You know what? For, yeah. Seriously. The business journal every yeah. year, they, they give you the book of lists. It's an easy way to prospect. Everybody is going to go in there and look at it. And everybody's going to whore themselves out to everybody that's in there. You know what I do? I just simply send them a note with my business card that says, congrats on making the fast 50. Looking forward yeah. to being there with you next year. That's it. Right. I don't try and sell them anything. I would love to have like a hidden camera where all these people are like, who's this guy? I don't have any idea who this guy is, but he sent me a note. Okay, great. That's all I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Not every interaction with somebody has to be about trying to close a deal. There's too many people that end up screwing up actual opportunities because they try and close way too early when in reality all I want them to do is get my name in their head in one of my stainless steel business cards which by the way I know they won't throw away and then when it's time for me to reach out to them and get them into our ecosystem where we're going to you know market to them in any of the number of ways we do there's at least some level of name recognition and brand recognition there mm -hmm. that's it and if I'm if I if I did my job right they're going to remember me as the guy who literally just sent him a thank you note.
Mm-hmm. I heard a great story of a um, a guy that ran a, a new business for it was like I can't remember what business they were in, maybe accounting. It was a big practice, and this guy was the absolute rainmaker in his industry, and it happened to be in Metro Detroit. And it just year after year after year, just massive amounts of new business compared to anyone else. And so somebody had asked him, like, I mean, tell like, what do you think is really different? What do you think you're doing that's different or unique? And it comes back to some of the stuff we talked about. And when he said, he's like, the the one thing that I do that is the biggest mover is every day I call at least one, just one person just to check in and see how they're doing. And I'm not trying to sell them anything. I'm just calling to see how they're doing. I read something about their business. What's going on in their world? Naturally, people genuinely ask, like, well, tell me what's going on with you. And it opens up a business conversation. But he's like, the only purpose of that call is to actually call and take an interest in somebody. But the thing is, I do it every day. And most people won't. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's literally that simple. The amount of business that comes out of it, because now on top of mind as a genuine human being, I'm, I go out of my way to not be selling, but of course I know that I am. And like, that's it. And that goes back to what we talked about before, the simple, fundamental, basic things, one of which is being genuine, actually mm-hmm. caring, like that, that's the kind of stuff that separates you. So what are, what are some big mistakes that you see from producers out there? Yeah. You know, we, um, one thing I, I share as an example. So you know, we talked about a lot of them, just kind right. of the basic fundamentals, like jumping quickly to trying to close a deal or something. So uh, I'll give you actually, I want to give you two different stories. So they actually happen to both be in the world of retail. So my uh, my first job in sales, we talked about earlier, was I was selling golf equipment. So as background, like I played golf competitively in high school and in college, and I wasn't like great or anything, but like I, I loved the game was the point. So I was selling golf equipment. And uh, one day, uh, one of the other, other salespeople in the store came up to me and she said, you know, you know, can you give me some advice? Like you're like our top seller. And I just, I need, I need some ideas. My first thing was like, I am, I had no idea. I had no <laughs> idea. No one ever told me that. So, so I, 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 the other thing that surprised me about this conversation was I never felt like I was selling anybody anything. I was just helping them. Someone walks in the store. I know that is, is the natural human reaction to a salesperson. You know, I heard someone say they have commission breath, like that, that someone walks in, like they're just repulsed. So I had to figure out a way, how do I disarm them? How's your day going? You've been playing much golf lately? Like, where, where have you played? Where do you like? Like, I'm not trying to sell. I'm just trying to strike a conversation. And, and eventually they'd realize, like, okay, this person is approachable. And then, you know, we'd have a conversation. Tell me about your game. Like, here's some of the latest new equipment. But, you know, the most expensive isn't the best. The least expensive isn't the worst. Let's figure out what's right for you. And it would kind of just go from there. I was just helping somebody. You know, there, there's a... um being a little bit more specific, there's a there's a store they sell running shoes. It's called it's called Roadrunner Sports. Roadrunner Sports has sold more running shoes and walking shoes than any place in the world. They've sold 80 million pairs of shoes, uh, 40 million pairs of shoes over the last 40 years. And what they, they they do is they have a really unique way to kind of take this this complex thing of like there's a hundred different pairs of running shoes and narrow it down to people to make it really simple, but it's incredibly persuasive. And so here's what happened. So like I walked into that store and, and I'm looking at this wall of like a hundred pairs of shoes. I'm like, Oh my God, like how in the world? I had no idea. I just, usually I just buy whatever cool, whatever is the right price. So a guy says like, Hey, what, what can I help you with? They'll go overwhelmed. I said, I have no idea. I can't believe how many options there are. And he said, well, let's talk about this and figure out what's right for you. And like, that was the thing. Let's figure out what's right for you. I'm not going to sell you something that we're going to figure out together. So he started walking me through this process. Are you going to run inside or outside? Well, I never thought about that. Are you going to run on a track? Are you going to run on the street? Are you going to run in the in the trails? It all affects like the tread of the shoe. We went outside, run to the flagpole, come on back. He watches how my foot strikes the ground. Go to the side, my foot strikes the ground. Go back inside and he says, all right, here's the three shoes that are right for you. Take a look, try them on, let me know what you want to do. So what happened was, he walked me through a process to help narrow these things down. And in the insurance industry, we know there's just like a ridiculous amount of options. But what he did is like he broke this down and then ultimately made the decision up to me. He relinquished control. I, As a buyer, I want to be in control. I'm just looking for you to help guide me to the right answer. And so, you know, that that simple little approach of like, you can't have a million options for people or 10 options for people. You don't want to have one option either. Like let the buyer feel like they're part of the decision process. 
um, which just takes a little bit more effort, a little bit more time. But if they feel like in control, then, you know, they're going to buy more from you. I honestly feel like all of the salespeople out there buy their shoes from the same place because my good friend Josh Braun actually has a story very similar hmm. to that where he went to the white, wasn't planning on buying anything, went to the mall with his wife. And the guy basically took some some guy who was there to kill time while his wife was shopping and walked him through the, the discovery process. And he walked out with a brand new pair of shoes. It, and I think it goes that also lends to the fact that is is salespeople. We appreciate a good sales process and somebody who's a master of their craft, man. I mean, I, I'm overly critical of everybody from the person who seats us in a restaurant to the person, <laughs> you know, like everywhere I go, I'm listening to how are. people, and I, you know, I'll even say something like, you know, Thanks I don't for know. putting I'm us not... in the back booth, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, not necessarily that, but it's just like, there's a lot of different ways. Like, you, you know, recently we went to, uh, I was in Chicago for a conference and we went to Michael Jordan's steakhouse. Which I was like, all right, we're going to Chicago. Michael Jordan, you know, pretty big name in Chicago. I've heard pretty decent things about this place. Let's go check it out. Ended up eating there twice while we were there. It was it was fantastic. But both of those experiences were not equal. The first time we went, we had probably one of the best uh, servers I've ever had in my life. Um, bar none, any restaurant, this guy was on his a game from the second we walked in, he was suggestively selling. He was taking time to explain preparation and, you know, you could tell what steaks he wanted you to buy and which ones he didn't want you to buy. But I was cool with that because I was being overly analytical anyhow, <laughs> but it was an awesome experience the entire time we sat there with him. Um, and even to the point where, you know, he heard us talking like he he would never interrupt conversation. If he heard us talking, he would come up, he would wait. And then when we were done, he would he would begin to talk. But at one point. They have the the steaks are served on these big butcher blocks and they had like three or four different kinds of meat. Ours had. um, It was supposed to come with a strip, a Wagyu strip, a filet, a filet mignon and a lobster tail and then a bunch like some other stuff and we had been talking about this prime delmonico that that looked like it was good but we wanted to get the butcher block and he said i can tell you what here's what we're going to do i heard you guys talking i know you want the prime delmonico i want you to have the prime delmonico instead of you getting two different strips keep the wagyu one that's the one that everybody wants anyhow it's really good keep your filet let's take and substitute this prime delmonico for the regular new york strip that was part of this how easy was that for him to do it was yeah. simple right you know number one i'm sure i paid for it i didn't even look to see if he charged me any different because that's the steak i wanted and he made it happen but just how smooth he was about going through that process same thing when it came time for sides same thing when it came time to sell dessert. We left absolutely stuffed. And every one of us said the same thing. Man, that guy was fantastic. I'd hire him in a second to come work at the agency because he has a process that he has learned and he is a master of his craft. Wives didn't come into town until two nights later to hang with us for the weekend. So they wanted to go to Michael Jordan's because the husbands posted the pictures from when we were at Michael Jordan's and they didn't get to go. So they wanted to go. We take them there. And guess what? We didn't have, we didn't have the same, same guy was mm. the steak is good. Every bit is good. The food was good. The wine was good. Nothing to complain about. The experience was completely mm. different. And had I gone that there and, mm. and had that same had, had, it's not that the guy was bad. He wasn't it just wasn't the, it wasn't the same. He didn't go above he, and beyond. He didn't he didn't miss anything. Like if I'm looking at X's and O's on a play, he he ran the play to perfection. What he didn't do was the extra piece, though. He didn't mm -hmm. do the thing, those little things that the other guy did. I mean, you don't know this about me more than likely, Bob, but I've written a couple of books and one of them was titled The Extra Two Minutes. And the entire premise of the book is if you just take two more minutes than everybody else to do the same task that they're doing, you're going to do it in a more memorable way that should lead to more sales conversions for you over time. And it's the difference between staying at Ritz Carlton and staying at another Marriott brand, you know, that's maybe a tier or two down. Functionally, they're both the same thing. It's a place for you to go lay your head down, sleep at night. 
But I don't go to the Ritz-Carlton because that's what I want. I go to the Ritz-Carlton because when I get out of my car, I'm greeted by name. When I go to check in, everything is absolutely perfect. When I go to my room, everything is already set up, typically with a welcome gift waiting for me when I get there. I like that. It makes me feel like they want me to be there and that I'm important to them. And as a result, I don't mind paying a little bit more to stay at that brand because I'm at the point in my life where I appreciate those things and I feel like I work hard enough to get those things. That's the difference. There's plenty of people out there that are you know, ultra successful and don't do the extra. I would just argue that if you take the time to do the extra, there's never a question about whether or not you're going to be successful. Yeah. And you know what? You'll probably enjoy it more and you'll feel pride. And, you know, if you have that mindset, you're going to build better, genuine connections with people. So, and then you're going to get referrals and, you know, you're going to start talking about the steakhouse that you went to just like you did. Mm -hmm. What's been the most rewarding thing about going out and speaking in front of people and kind of shifting your career path into training others and helping them be better at sales? Yeah, it's um, it's so rewarding, uh, and and I would say that there's there's a there's a couple of different parts of it. Like one is over time, like as I as I've led different teams and I built my own company and everything, that you begin to learn in your career. Like, gosh, I know more than I realize. Like, and some of the little things that I share with people, I coach people on, I realize like are very simple and seems very simple and straightforward to me, but it is not simple and straightforward to other people. And so, you know, so then to, to go through the process of how do I extract a lot of these things out of my brain and put them into a way that's like easy to understand, I can communicate in a way that's memorable, I can bring in stories like I just really enjoy that. I love the I love building things. And so the idea of like being able to create that and it's a never ending thing, like the speech that I built a year ago, you know, I was so pumped about it. And then like fast for a little while, I'm like, that speech sucks. And then, <laughs> and then like, then you start building and iterating and you kind of keep going. And now I'm on the current version, which I know like six months from now, I'm going to be like, ah, you know, I got to keep it. And so you just, I, I actually love the process of iterating and fixing it and making it better and, and delivering the performance on stage. That is always like in, when, when you're speaking as a professional, you kind of have to have a, a balance between you know, for me, like I'm all about let me deliver a speech that gives tangible advice is going to help people walk out of here and they're going to be able to win more business, like no doubt about it. On the other hand, you've got to have a little little bit of entertainment factor going on. And so, you know, that part, you're know, learning to balance those two things and it forces me to bring a little more energy out than I might normally see. That's like number one. And number two is like, I mean, to see people react and be like, that was unbelievable. And you gave me something that is going to change the way that I operate this is going to change the trajectory of my career it's going to change the way i, I was just a, did a speech last week i was in atlantic city and someone's like what you shared with me is like i'm going to we're going to go back get to work and it's going to change the direction of our company it's so it's so rewarding so um so knowing knowing that those ideas that i try to kind of codify and bring forward are actually making an impact is highly rewarding so it's also like i said it's i, I love building it i love turning it into something and you know, as, as you learn your craft, I mean, hey, you guys are doing it with this podcast and other things too. You know, it can also be financially rewarding because you're figuring out a way to best leverage your skills to help other people. And, you know, that that has an advantage to it too. So it's kind of a perfect combination of multiple things. You know, I've said for a long time, the one thing that every single one of us is selling and has the ability to sell is our own brain. That's it. <laughs> your intellectual capital is what's going to differentiate you at the point of sale, regardless of the product. You know, your approach is going to be unique to you. If you have any game at all, you should be able to come up with a unique approach that's going to get people's attention and subsequently drive revenue. But if most of it boils down to your brain. How are you wired? Are you wired to educate? Are you wired to solve problems? Can you articulate your solution? Can you articulate the perceived problem yeah. in a way that your buyer understands? And then can you subsequently articulate the solution to that problem so that they see the need for the solution? 
And ultimately, insurance is insurance, man. General liability is general liability. Yes, there are exclusions, endorsements, sublimits, and all of that stuff that every single one of us has to know about. But at the end of the day, you're never getting to the point where you place the policy if you don't close the deal and have that person get, uh, gain enough trust in you to want you to be the person to do that for them. And the way you do that is through how you represent yourself, how you have a different approach, and how you sell your intellectual capital for all practical purposes at the point of sale. How I go in and sell to somebody is completely different than how a large number of my competitors do. It's not completely unique because there are other people who tend to, you know, do some, some of the same things, but for all practical purposes, when I go in, it's going to be the first time that prospect has heard that conversation from anybody. And I know that I'm in the right place when they're looking at me like I'm either nuts or I'm a genius. Either way, I know that I'm having the right conversation because it's the first time. And it's crazy to think that in an industry that is as populated as the insurance industry, that's been in existence for the same, as many years as the insurance industry has, that you can still find unique ways to open the door and have conversations. And I think that holds true with any industry at all. You just have to be willing to think differently and look at things from a different perspective than what the status quo does. Otherwise, you're just going to be one of the lemmings getting ready to head over the side of the cliff. No doubt. So we got about nine minutes left <laughs> before we hit the top of the hour. What what have we missed that you wanted to cover, Bob? Uh, you know, hey, well, I've really enjoyed the conversation. This is uh, this is this is good stuff. You know, one thing that um I I would share that some of the stuff you were just talking about, I think, is uh, is, is so important. You know, there there's an element that I often share with people about how how much we get in our own way more than other people or our company or our products or services, whatever it might be, get in our way. And, you know, there's something, um, it's a, it's a kind of section of my speech that I call noise canceling confidence. And so the, the, the idea here, the, using the analogy, like noise canceling headphones. So, so you kind of go back, like where, where this all starts, so a guy by the name of Dr. Amar Bose invented the noise canceling headphones. He was on a flight from the U S back to Switzerland. And he, um, and he got the headphones, he plugged them in like the two prongs in the in the in the thing, <laughs> like you got eight stations, it sounds terrible. And so this motivated him to say, you know, gosh, this experience is so bad. Like, and he started drawing and engineering out what 10 years later became the world's first commercial uh noise canceling headphones. So the way noise canceling headphones work is that they have a tiny little speaker in them, or I'm sorry, a speaker, and it's listening for that out exterior noise. A little piece of electronics determines the sound waves, and then what it does it creates a reverse sound wave that comes in through the speaker um, and then it can't, it cancels out that exterior noise. So you can focus on, you know, what you really want to focus on. Now I use this analogy because in our own life, we also have a lot of noise and a lot of that noise in our head for a lot of reasons. We don't believe in ourselves. We worry what other people are going to think about us. We're scared of how the customers are going to react. Remember something that somebody we don't like said to us one time and it makes us hesitate. And, and the thing is that voice in our head, is, is one of the biggest limiters to our success more than anything else. And so when you're in sales, I think it's important to understand this. Um, there's a book I read recently called You Have More Influence Than You Think. It's fascinating. And the core like idea in there through countless numbers of research, which I can go into, which are kind of interesting, it, it is that people are twice as likely to say yes to our request than we give ourselves credit for. So the point is like mm. we get in our way more than the customers getting in our way. We just don't, we, we become afraid to ask or afraid to bring it up. Like we don't bring up something that would be helpful to somebody. We don't ask for the order. We don't knock on that door. We don't, you know, for reasons that are more about us than are about anybody else. And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, that's important. It's just a natural human thing. It's not a, you are, you are weak and therefore you won't be a good salesperson. It is a natural human thing. But if we want to succeed in sales, We've got to understand that and make a little bit more effort and determination to overcome it and just kind of have to carry ourselves with confidence. Because the thing is, customers want that. Like they don't want someone who's arrogant. Like that's super annoying. Like that's not it. But they want someone who's confident, understands what they're doing, can communicate with conviction and can can help the customer get something done. And so, so when I talk about this world of simplicity, you know, a lot of things that I'm talking about are understanding simply the mind of the customer, what motivates them to make decisions, 
And then what are the things that we can do? And one of them, it starts with confidence. And so we carry ourselves with confidence and ignore that noise in our head. We can make the customer feel a lot more comfortable with us and much more willing to move forward. And really, you think about what our role is, we got to understand our industries, but what we're trying to do is just help people make decisions. And we can help them, have them make those decisions faster. They're going to make more of them in our favor because of the things that we talk about. Simplicity, communication, narrowing things down, confidence, that ultimately is what it's all about. Cool. Kyle, anything else as we wrap up? I don't think so, man. We've been going. We've had a lot of good conversation. I think we've hammered it pretty good. How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, good. Well, hey, I've enjoyed the conversation, the very natural flowing conversation. I feel like I could talk to you guys all day long. Um, so yeah, so so again, Bob Marsh, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You know, I'm always uh, always happy to connect with folks there. And then on my website is meetbobmarsh.com. So you can learn more about my speaking practice, the different things I talk about. I also got a pretty active blog. Um, so I'm just always kind of sharing ideas and things that are I think would be helpful. So uh, love, nope. always check me out there and always happy to always kind of keep an active on LinkedIn in particular. So sweet. Good deal. Well, listen, man, really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. Uh, know how valuable your time is. And certainly I feel like conversation was good. The audience certainly should have some things to think about at the end mm -hmm. of the day, keeping it simple is really the hardest thing that we do. We make it hard. It's not that it's hard. It's that we make it hard. And so in sometimes we just need to do the one thing I talk about all the time, and that's slow down to speed up. Let's think about what what's going on. How can I make this as easy as possible, as simple as possible? Not necessarily easy, simple. Simple and easy are not, they are not synonyms. And then engineer your process from there. You know, I think sometimes we're so worried about all of the bells and whistles and shiny objects out there that we forget about the fact that sometimes just a very succinct message is all it takes to get your point across. And that's what we could each focus on and improve on as we move into 2024. So with that being said, Bob, we'll catch you next time. I'm sure that we'll talk again at some point in the future. And if you're somebody out there, one of the insurance state associations, or you're with an aggregator and you're looking for somebody to come in from a speaking standpoint to be a keynote for you, feel free to reach out to Bob because he does that. And I think that his voice would certainly be one that is very refreshing to our industry. With that, we'll catch you next time. See everybody later. See you. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.